0: Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to The Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen.
1: You are the, not a, not one of many, not one for his day as the New Agers would suggest today. Well, there was a Christ in that day, and there was a Christ before him, and there's another after him. No, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me.
0: Part two of Pastor Sam's message, A Revelation from Heaven. What is that revelation? Jesus reveals to us who he is, what's in store for him, and what he wants from us. As we consider this today, we'll begin in Mark chapter eight, starting in verse 28. Let's listen in.
1: Well, anyway, Jesus was not Elijah, although it's at least reasonable that some might have thought he could be. If they didn't recognize him as the Messiah, Malachi the very last chapter and we're going to either get to it this Wednesday or the following Wednesday we're in chapter 3 they're short chapters but we've been kind of going slow through our Wednesday night study and uh, anyway Malachi chapter 4 says that Elijah will be returning before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, this wasn't the great and terrible day of the Lord. This was the beginning of the dispensation of grace where the law and the prophets were unto John. And now Jesus is on the scene. He is ushering in and making possible an age of grace, the one we're still living in. And and so Jesus, well, some thought, well, if he's not the Messiah, he might be Elijah. And again, that would be a reasonable thought because they didn't really see two comings. They just thought Jesus was going to come. This is true of his disciples. We'll see this clearly later in the gospel. They thought he was going to to, to crush the Roman rule, usher in the kingdom of God. The millennium would begin, glorious uh, time on earth where peace would rule and reign and for a thousand years where, where everything was as it should be. But anyway... This wasn't that day, and Jesus wasn't Elijah. Elijah will still come. I believe he's one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation, along with Moses. And we'll see both of them together in our next study, and we'll talk a little bit more about them and about that. Well, some said he's one of the prophets. That's because he came and he spoke for, well, He spoke for the Lord, but in a way, the prophets never did. You see, they came saying, both the the, the faithful and the unfaithful, those who were representing the Lord and those who never even stood in the presence of the Lord, those who were faithful prophets, true prophets, and those who were unfaithful because they weren't actually his prophets. They were false prophets. They had this in common. They all said, thus, says the Lord. They all claimed authority from the Lord and claimed to be speaking for the Lord. But the difference, of course, God's actual prophets stood in his presence. They heard his words. They declared them and turned his people from their sin. That was the mission, you see. They comforted when there was comfort needed. They rebuked when rebuke was... Uh, needed as well and and, in every case when they said thus says the Lord it's because the Lord gave them something to say now you'll never read of Jesus saying thus says the Lord because Jesus is the Lord and most of you've put that together he came not not saying thus says the Lord but he said you've heard it has been said I know what they're saying you know what they've said but I say unto you. And we're told the common people heard him gladly and the people marveled at his teaching and preaching because he spoke as one with authority. Of course, he didn't need a word from the Lord. He was the Lord speaking forth his own word. Well, anyway, as we continue on, our study began... With the Pharisees' demand, and I made mention of that, they weren't just seeking, they were demanding a sign from heaven, something Jesus at this point refused to provide. But we conclude with a revelation or two or three from heaven as we get to see in this passage who he is, what that means, and what he requires of us. As he'd said, Who do men say I am? Now he says, Who do you say I am? And he says to them, Who do you say that I am? Verse 29, thought I should read it. Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Listen, those four words. Christ means Messiah, it means Savior, it means the promised one, it means the anointed one. You are. The, not a, not one of many, not one for his day as the New Agers would suggest today. Well, there was a Christ in that day and there was a Christ before him and there's another after him. No, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. So let's deal with that word Christ, 554 times it appears in Scripture. And here's what's even more astounding. All of them are in the New Testament, 39 Old Testament books. The word Christ only appears in the 27 or among the 27 New Testament books, 554 times. I would think that makes that word important. It's coupled with the word Jesus, where you'll read Jesus Christ 184 times. The Christ 56, Savior, well, 36 times, some in the old, some in the new. Messiah, just four times, two in the old and two in the new. Matthew gives us some more insight, another piece of the puzzle, if you will, he says, the son of the living God, adding to you are the Christ. He recalls Peter saying in Matthew 16, 11, if you're a note jotter, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar-Jonah means son of Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't get it from your friends. You didn't get it from the other disciples. You didn't hear it in the synagogue. You didn't get it on the streets. No, he said flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. See, this is a revelation from heaven. And it's such an important one because it is pointing us to the only one who can save us from our sins, who can transform us and make us more like him who can fit us for the work he's called us to and perfect us when we stand in his presence flesh and blood hasn't revealed us to you but my father in heaven and I say to you you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it well Peter experiences what I'm praying all of us every one of us will experience today And that's a revelation from heaven that we'll realize we're not just reading words on a page or hearing someone deliver a message that that these are the words of life. This is a revelation from heaven. It's the father declaring to Peter and Peter declaring for the father. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. By the way, Jesus came down from heaven To reveal the Father to us. So that he says at one point, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. One of them says, hey, show us the Father. That's what we really want. And he's like, hey, you've seen me. You've seen the Father. We know how the Father thinks. We know how he feels. We know what he would say and what he is saying in any given situation. Because Jesus, we're told, is the exact representation of the Father. To see him, to hear him, to know him is to see and hear and know the Father. He does say something else. He says, upon this rock, I will build my church. It has been confusing to many because he said, Peter, you're a rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Well, Peter's like a, he's a pebble compared to the rock that Jesus is speaking of. Oh, he uses Peter mightily. He will preach the gospel on the day of Pentecost, and three thousand people give their life to the Lord. First mega church there in Jerusalem, a church of one hundred and twenty goes to three thousand one hundred and twenty in a day, in a moment, as people give their lives to Him. Then they're publicly baptized. They begin to. Worship together daily from house to house and gathering in the temple, hearing the word, discussing the word, but most importantly, living out the things that they were learning from the Lord. So in the midst of all of that, Peter is a rock, but he is not the foundation of Jesus Church. No one would have thought that a good idea in that day. And it's not a good idea today to build the church on any man. It's not the work of man. It's the work of the spirit. The church is built on this simple declaration. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ again means savior. It means Messiah. It means um, anointed one. And Jesus came to save us from our sins. And when you hear the simple message that he died for your sins, that's a declaration that you are a sinner. Or he wouldn't have had to die for your sins. He was buried, it's the proof he was dead. He rose again, ascending into heaven ultimately, the proof that he was and his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. So he is the way, the truth and the life. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the good shepherd. He's the only way to the father and he reveals the father to us. Well, everyone who hears the gospel and responds by giving their life to the Lord is sealed, we're told, in Ephesians with the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful concept because what he's doing is he's saying he's taking ownership. We say, Jesus, come into my life. You should know Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He comes in the person of the Holy Spirit who lives to reveal Jesus. Just as Jesus said, he came to reveal the Father and bring glory to the Father. There's this perfect unity in the work of the Trinity. And so we pray to the Father in Jesus name and the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's the Holy Spirit who comes in who seals us, who takes residence within us and secures us until that day we stand before Jesus and are made like him. Well, he goes from this sign from heaven, a revelation from the father, a revelation from heaven to yet another revelation. And that is what it means for him to be the savior. He began to teach him, verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Listen, at this point, they don't take this literally, though they should have. He's not saying it for the first time. He said it again and again on the road to and now in, and then as they move again. He's telling them over and over and it gets clearer and clearer, more and more graphic, not just rejected, but rejected by the spiritual leaders, the chief priests, the elders and scribes. He'll be killed. And after three days, rise again. It says he spoke this word openly. Now, Peter takes him aside and this shouldn't surprise us. If anyone was going to do it, it's Peter. And so he takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Matthew 16, adds, far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. Peter is saying, in essence, having declared Jesus as the Christ, and Jesus starts to say, well, here's what that means. Here's what that entails. Here's what that requires of me. Peter's like, well, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to let that happen. Not to you, Lord. Now, it appears that he has a revelation, not just from heaven, but there's a revelation from hell that follows it. How so? Well, verse 33, it said, when he turned around and looked at his disciples. I like that image. He looks around, he looks at all of them, and then he looks and rebukes Peter after just saying, blessed are you, Peter. Now he's saying, Get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now, it appears the enemy listens into these conversations. And I can't be sure if if Jesus is seeing Satan literally there and calling him out because he would know or if he's just saying, Peter. You're you're listening to the enemy. I mean, this, this revelation, unlike the prior, isn't from heaven. This is a revelation from hell. What is it? That Jesus can have what he came for without the cross. That he doesn't have to suffer, that he doesn't have to die, that he doesn't have to give his life. And it's not the first time Satan has suggested such a thing. He did it in person to Jesus at his temptation. And I'll read it to you. It's Matthew 4, 8. Again, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. He's saying, you don't have to die for this. You can have it. I mean, look at, here it is. All the kingdoms, all their glory. You know what he wasn't showing Jesus? Something that Jesus already was fixated on. And that's all the suffering and all the misery and all the pain and all the shame and and all sin produces in men. The death. That's what Jesus was looking at. We kind of get caught up in, wow, that's beautiful or that's glorious or that's wonderful. But Jesus wasn't fooled by any of this. It's tragic that men worship the creation instead of the creator. But here we have a being Created by Jesus, for Jesus, who once worshipped Jesus, who fell from his high position, rebelled against the Lord. Now suggesting to the Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords, hey, I can get you all this and it won't cost you anything. Just bow down and worship me. Well, Jesus tells him Away with you, Satan. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. The devil left him. Angels came and ministered to him. One of the other gospels, that's Matthew, but one of the other gospels says that he left until a more opportune time. Until another opportunity arose to tempt our Lord Well, one more revelation from heaven. We have that first. This is the Christ. This is my son. He's the one. And Peter had it. Then we get the revelation from hell. Now another one from heaven because we certainly want to end there. And this is the one from the one who came from, returned to, and will someday soon call us up to meet him in the air. Then be there in heaven. At the throne, casting our crowns at his feet, singing, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty. All that awaits you if you're in Christ Jesus and he's in you. When he had called, verse 34, take a look. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Deny himself. Take up his cross. They're aorist imperatives. What does that mean? It's a once and for all thing. You decide, I'm going to stop living for me and I'm going to start living for the Lord. I'm going to take up my cross. And of course, the Lord bore his cross for us. So when we take up our cross, that's about others. It's, it's not something we have to struggle with or go through or, or, or you know, we ha- use the expression, it's just my cross to bear. Your cross. To bear is to live for Christ in the presence of others so they can come to know him, to love them the way he loves them, to care for and provide for and do good too. So deny himself, take up his cross and then follow me. Too many people want to follow Jesus, but the idea of denying themselves completely foreign, taking up their cross. Listen, this is a part of the, the puzzle again, if you will. That you take these pieces out, you get a very incomplete picture of what he has for us. If we're going to follow him, walk the road he walked, live for him and one another, the world around us, we have to deny ourselves. And I just want to say, at least for me, that doesn't come natural. In fact, Pam, some of you know, she sprained her ankle and she sprained it bad. She's in a giant boot uh, for eight weeks. We had it checked after three. They said, no, oh, at least five more weeks. So maybe longer than that. But she can't drive. There's a lot of things she can't do right now. And, and here's what I noticed about me in the process of taking care of her. I thought I was a servant until I was actually required to be one. <laughs> and all of a sudden I'm like. Well, I'm doing it all, but I'm not always happy about it. And, and I'm just saying that to be honest with you, because, because it's about every day denying ourselves. It's a once and for all thing that needs to be affirmed daily. I've given my life to the Lord, but I need to affirm that today. I'll need to affirm that tomorrow. Lord, I gave my life to you, but I want to live my life for you today. So I give you me afresh. We take up our cross and then We follow in his footsteps. That follow me is a present imperative. That means we keep on following him. We start at day one and we never stop walking the road. He's gone before us wherever it leads because he's the one who's leading us on it. Well, verse 35, and we're almost there. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. You know, Jesus prayed, if there was any other way there in the garden, if there's any other way, Father, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's what this is saying. We need to pray and then we need to live as if we meant it. If we try to hang on to who we are and what we have and what we're aspiring to be and what we're aspiring to possess, he says we're going to lose What's most important, that that which is everlasting, that which is spiritual. Verse 36, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, something no one has ever done or ever will? But he said, if you could, what profit would it be to you if you gain the whole world and he loses his own soul? Listen, souls are eternal Stuff is temporal. The only thing we take to heaven with us is other people. So everything's going to perish. Everything we work for and save for and, and, and worry about, it's all going to perish. We, that's why he was fixated on people and that's why he wants That to be our fixation as well. And then he says, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That question's important. He's saying, what price would God accept from you? There's only one. And Jesus paid it. You couldn't pay if you wanted to. Because a sinless man sold us into sin and led us into sin. Only a sinless man could get us out could buy us back, could redeem us. And that's what Jesus has done for us. We don't have anything to give that God would say, okay, well, then that will work for me. There's no bargain we can strike. It's him. He paid in full. And when he cries from the cross, it is finished. Those words literally translate paid in full whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the son of man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with his holy angels. Listen, we should never be ashamed of him, but we should be ashamed of our sin. And that's why he says, if we'll confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. One more, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's Paul's declaration in Romans one16 I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God to salvation. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith.
0: Who do you say I am? There is no greater question you must answer in all of your existence. And know this, your existence is eternal, as you were made in God's image and God is eternal. Now you can say that you're not ready to answer that question, but that does not excuse you from taking a position on the subject. In Matthew 12, 30, Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. You might say, I'm not against Jesus, but if you're not willing to testify with your mouth that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then you are not with him. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam.